Chapter 8 of the Shunzu is entitled The Achievements of the Ru. And unlike the previous chapter, um, which starts with the title on Confucius and wasn't really um, too much about Confucius, here uh, we're talking really about the Ru and their benefit that they bring to a society. Uh, so how I'm going to divide up this lecture is first, I'm just going to talk generally about the rue and the benefits they bring, and then we'll talk about um, specific parts in this chapter. So the first part is going to uh, draw in some of the ideas from outside of this chapter, and that's fine uh, because I think that's more helpful. Back then, was was called the hundred schools of thoughts and this is really a competition among um, many different philosophers with their own kind of Tao uh, that they are advocating for so some people advocate essentially what is a proto-communism um, some people advocate um, other other ways uh, that have to do with um, uh, simply ruling without law and, and so you, you have all sorts of different ideas that are being uh, argued and debated and so this is just a time of general chaos uh, people you know we're, we're kind of taught to think oh diversity of ideas is good and so forth but if you really think about the nature of truth and falsehood there's a lot more falsehood than truth. And you can tell because in these disciplines where um, that are exacting, uh, such as mathematics, you have a correct answer, if, if you're talking about you know, coming up with a numerical answer, and many other, and every other number is incorrect. So it's the nature of truth to be um, limited in its, in, in its, in its number, um, but the diversity of falsehoods is practically unlimited. So during this time, people are like now, they think, okay, Confucianism, uh, what's the point of it? What's valuable about it? Why should I spend my time learning Confucianism? Now people say, oh, time times have changed um, today, but uh, human nature fundamentally does not change. Our technology might change, but human nature and how we relate uh, in some fundamental relationships does not change. So there's this question being asked, what's the point of the rue? And the rue is um, what we call today Confucian scholars, um, because the rue is um, existed before Confucius, and it ties back all the way to the days of Yao and Shun and um, and the Duke of Zhou, uh, these very significant names. And these persons live um, thousands of years before Shunzi, before Confucius. So, um, The tradition is called Ru, and uh, 
the term Confucian scholar is more of a relatively recent Western invention of this term. Okay, so what is the benefit of the having Ru? The Ru is somebody who goes back to the fundamental truths of Ren, Yi, and Li, respectively, uh, what's the no most noble of our human beings, that's Ren. Um, Yi is righteousness, morality, and Li is ritual propriety, which of course is connected to Yi because it's not proper unless it's moral. Okay. So Shunzi, um, Shunzi points this out, uh, that the, these th uh, three things are at the foundation of what it means to be a Ru. And the Ru, by adhering from these fundamental roots, can guide leaders, such as kings, and dukes and emperors on how to rectify society such that it is moral, it is pleasant to live in, the people are loyal, and the state is abundant in resources such as food and well defended. So there's a political benefit towards a rue. And there's also a cultural benefit towards uh, from having the Ru by ways of setting example, by teaching, by developing the culture further. So even when they are not in a position of official status, they are a great blessing. But it is, of course, better to put them in official status because they can do far much more good that way. It's far more expedient, uh, more effective, let me put it that way. Okay. Now let's go into some particularities that he points out. This first section from lines 1 to, one, let's say, 38, is talking about these people throughout history. King Wu, King Chung, Duke of Zhou. Duke of Zhou especially is a hero of Confucius. Uh, Confucius dreams about him from time to time. And that's how inspiring he is to Confucius. And the Duke of Zhou really is a man responsible for developing much of the music and the rituals for the Zhou dynasty. So he's really involved in the culture there and he himself is an exemplary person. Okay. Line thir 39, King Dao of Chen questions Sunzu saying the Ru are no benefit to a person's state. And so this is where we get to the meat of the chapter. Sunzu is justifying the importance of the root. Okay. So, um, some points to point out here on line 53, they still comprehend the key principles for making use of the 10,000 things in nurturing the common people. Again, the key principles is like the fundamental roots of Yi, Li, and Ren, and they can take that and apply that to the 10,000 things, in other words, all the smaller things out there in the world, whether we're talking about ideas or literally objects like land, tools. Um, and so they know how to use these various tools well. 
That's different from our day. We don't have a sense of Ren, E, and Li. And so what happens is we have all these tools like technology and they're simply used to destroy your lives. Like think about the smartphone. It just makes people into worse persons, constantly distracts them, constantly wraps them back into business, uh, or simply is just used to um, keep track of their behavior uh, in, a, in an oppressive way. And so um, this is not making use of the 10,000 things and nurturing the common people, but the root, because he goes back to these fundamentals of humanity, of uh, virtue, of righteousness, and of propriety and beauty, he knows how to use the myriad things, including technology, and what's available, you know, during the times he lives, to nurture the common people so that they become better, so that they become happier, so they that they have more um, more goods, tangibly speaking. Okay, let's go down to line. 68, when the Ru are in the court, they improve the government because they know about political leadership, what policies work, what laws to have, who to promote, who to demote. Uh, when they are in subordinate positions, then they improve the state's customs, the culture. So in other words, they don't have that. And so a Ru like myself, I am trying to improve the customs of my country of the world by teaching, by setting example. Okay. All right, let's go to line 79. Even if they could obtain the whole world by performing a single act that goes against E, righteousness, justice, or by killing a single innocent person, they would not do it. I like this very much because this is how much integrity the Ru has. You see all these politicians today, this day, they, you know, they start off with good intentions and as they get more competitive, as they go for higher and higher positions, they start to lie, they make these underhanded deals behind the scenes, uh, they compromise their integrity constantly. And you see this time and time again because the system basically rewards this. You know, People who do this are able to get more money to advertise and win elections. So the system ultimately is the fault. So you have these people, they are well-intentioned. Some of them refuse and they lose. They, they refuse to compromise their integrity and they lose earlier on. Um, and then the other guys, they continue because they've broken their integrity and they win. So, you know, and by the time you get to the national elections, it's already, you know, you don't have a really great set of people, but think about certain people um, you know, you, you know who they are. They, they're more principled. You know, I don't have to supply names here. They're more principled, but uh, they lose in the primaries pretty early, you know. So that's something to, under, to, to consider. Line 99, the way of the former kings consists in exalting Ren. One must cleave to what is central in carrying it out. So the way of the former kings is the Tao, the Confucian Tao, the Tao, the Ru Tao, okay? Um, what is central is ritual and E, again, Li and E, ritual propriety and justice and righteousness. This way is not the way of heaven, nor is it the way of earth, it is whereby humans make their way and that which the gentleman takes as his way. Why? Because the way is not 
according to the to Shunzi, heaven is something that gives nature to the various things. So for example, gravity would be considered the work of heaven. Uh, human beings' ability to feel happiness and sad, sadness is a work of heaven. Okay, it's not something that we do for ourselves, that human beings can do for ourselves. So this Tao is the way that human beings make their way. In other words, it's our ways. It's a Ren, Ren Tao. Okay. Um, so we, we as human beings, we want to be happy. We need to survive physically. We want to get married and we want to have children and we want everyone to get along uh, without conflict, without fear of conflict. And that, the, in order to accomplish this, we have the Tao. Okay. On line 120, the rest of this paragraph, the, the Junza, what he specializes in is assessing people's virtue, measuring people's abilities, um, so that the worthy and unworthy uh, each obtain their proper places. The myriad things get all that is appropriate for them, and the changes in affairs are met with, each met with a proper response. Okay, in other words, um, with both persons and things, you know, they find their proper place in society. So you put the virtuous people at top, you put the talented people in charge of things, and then that is what makes society work well. You know, people look up to the virtuous and model after them, and then people who have to are knowledgeable and expertise, they do, they do things like figure out, you know, uh, how to advance the technology appropriately, perhaps, or simply make correct laws and policies. Um, and the myriad things get what's appropriate for them. So in other words, the land isn't over-cultivated, uh, or in today's terms, we uh, prevent environmental destruction, but at the same time, the land and the resources are cultivated to a reasonable degree. So here we already have a you know, a statement talking about what you could, we, we would consider environmental policy. The trick to good environmental policy is not to do too much that you end up with a lot of undeserved destruction, but not too little that people are constantly poor and essentially barefooted. Okay, so we have the proper response for all things. Next paragraph, we have this line 137, conform to what's central again. The next, there's this paragraph afterwards, starting in line 142. Uh, as for the problems of, of how fullness and emptiness mutually replace each other, or the distinctions between the hard and the wide, the similar and similar. Um, Shunzo says, uh, you know, that these are basically insincere arguments. They're not really important, or they are just there to mess with your mind. Um, and so, um, even if one should have the wisdom of a sage, one could not comprehensively point out answers for them. Uh, you know, things like, um, uh, you know, how, how, do you, how do you know, for example, that uh, wanton killing of human beings is wrong? You know, that's, you can't comprehensively point out an answer to this, you know, or something like, um, a question like, um, why 
why is love valuable? You know, familial love. You, you can't really point out an answer to this. You know, why do you love your family? Um, ultimately, you can't really. And if you get bogged down into to this debate, you have to add. You know, you have to start asking, what is this for? You know, is this is this at all practical? Okay. Um, to know to be ignorant of these things does no harm to becoming a Jesuit. In other words, you don't really need to know these things. So he's not necessarily saying that, um, you know, you have to avoid them. He's just pointing out some arguments are not really important for getting involved in. And a lot of modern philosophy gets into these sorts of questions, uh, and they ask, you know, these things like, or even mathematics. So, for example. Uh, in high school, there was this young man who had tried to, you know, he's demonstrated to me why 0.9999 to infinity actually literally equals one. It's not important. <laughs> you know, it's really not. So um, now what's interesting is later on in this paragraph, he says, um, if kings and dukes are fond of these things, it will distort the, lo the laws. If the common people are fond of these things, it will disorder their work. Then reckless, confused, stupid, and ignorant men will begin to lead their groups of disciples, argue over their doctrines, and expound their particular terminology. So you start off with these arguments that don't need to be made, that are not useful, and maybe some of them have a logic to them, and maybe others don't, but they get to be very proficient in using logic to come up with these interesting conclusions. But then that generally drifts off into these directions where people are making these bizarre arguments for its own sake. In other words, people are very clever with their arguments. They want to have some kind of agenda and then they start to uh, construct it as such. You know, like there's no such thing as male and female. Well, you can make an argument for that and you can bring up some evidence for it, but does it really matter um, for good governing, for your own um, happiness as an individual, I would I would say no. And the furthermore, once you start to engage in this kind of arguments, then then you have these people that are playing, playing politics based off of these questions, and they will use it to gain political support. They'll use it to gain wealth, and chaos will ensue. I believe that is what Shuz is talking about here. So he calls this the highest foolishness. Uh, and this is a situation where people do not understand the wrong that they are doing. Okay, so his whole point is you need to conform with what is central, what is important, what is essential to human flourishment, to human happiness, to human goodness. And don't try to master a uh, what might be translated in the analects as a heterodox doctrine. Okay, uh, so the next part that I want to point out here is line 192, thus to be a magnificent person is also to be a rich man. He's not talking about uh, financial riches, he's talking about what's truly valuable, which of course is your virtue. So the next sentence says, Henson, general, the Junza is noble without holding a title and is rich without receiving a salary. Okay. Now, 
after this point, the discussion goes a little bit more towards um, this idea of reputation. So 199, let's talk about what reputation kind of uh, means. Reputation is not something that has to do with the number of people who know you necessarily. What he means is how people consider you, what we might call honor. Okay, so a noble reputation, um, he says that regarding this, um, you cannot get a good reputation, noble reputation, by playing politics. Instead, the Junzhen on line 205 cultivates what's on the inside, and he lets go on those things on the outside. So he cultivates his virtue, that's on the inside. He lets go of external things like money, um, you know, nice houses, fancy clothes on the outside. He works at accumulating virtuous person and he manages things by following the way. Um, if he is like this, then a noble reputation will arise. And the whole world will respond to him like a noise, like a thunderclap. Thus, as I said, the Junja is hidden away but eminent. Okay. Um, this idea is, is uh, also continued elsewhere, but let's talk about how this works because if you become more and more virtuous, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you'll become, I don't know, YouTube famous or something like that. Um, it doesn't mean that you know everybody will start liking you. This is not what she's just saying, and he's very clear about these things in other chapters. Um, basically, there will be people who recognize you. Um, that is what the noble reputation means. If we're talking about the whole world will respond to him, um, even though he's hidden away but eminent, this has more to do with some um, invisible or intangible ways of the world reacting. And so this uh, kind of touches a little bit into the direction of, um, you know, kind of, I don't want to say supernatural belief, but um, there's sort of a, a, a spiritual impact uh, that then occurs. And so um, Shunzi is, out of the uh, Confucian philosophers that we'll talk about, the least, um, the person who least emphasizes this, this kind of thinking. Um, but the, um, the whole world responding to him has to do with things that are not really immediate and obvious. So for example, we look at Confucius. He has something of a reputation while he's alive, but for the most part, he's relatively ignored. However, the whole world does respond to his existence in the sense that as time passes, there's more and more reverence for Confucius and his virtue and what his life was about. So even though Confucius probably died thinking that he had failed in his aspirations to bring back the Tao into the world, ultimately the whole world did respond and his fame grew. And so past his death, he has a huge, great legacy that very few people in human history can be compared to having. And so I think that's what Shunzi is talking about here. Not so much um, exactly, um, you know, like uh, 
God hears your prayers kind of way. Not, not quite that. Um, and people, people are concerned with their legacy. Ultimately, I'm concerned with, with, um, you know, what impact that I will leave on the world, um, beyond simply my lifetime or the, the, you know, the amount of money I would make in my career. Okay. So that's something, that's why, uh, Shunzi talks about reputation here. Okay. Um, line 239. He's talking about some characters of uh, the common people, the well-bred man, the generous and devoted Junza, and the sage. Um, so that's in this section. You can read that. Uh, and we move from the common man. His virtue is, you know, accumulating material goods as his treasures. Um, to he says, to take following customs as being good. This is another way of saying they go, go with the flow, they do whatever, it's trendy, and they think that's good, okay? That's a common man. Um, that's a common people. Take maintaining one's life as one's ultimate way, that's a common man's ways. Uh, that's his virtue. You know, there are, there are a lot of people out there, they just refuse to die. And, um, you know, if you're dying of cancer, you've got less than a year left, and you're spending like half of the money you've ever made trying to live another month, this is what you can understand as to take maintaining one's life as one's ultimate way. Okay, so the common man's virtue, his duh, his power, is not very high-minded here. Compare this to the well-bred man who is resolute. Um, he wants to follow the proper model. He does not allow his selfish desires to distort what he's learned. Okay. Then the step above that um, goes to the Junza and then finally the Sage. Each time we get to more understanding, more integrity, and um, by the time we get to the Sage, he's able to adapt to changes in the current times as easily as counting one and two. Okay. So again, this is a situation where you understand the fundamental principles, the fundamental roots, the fundamental truths, and yet you can also have the ability to apply them appropriately to new situations. And so this is what anybody who's skilled at any art is like. He had, he's, he's a master of the fundamentals, and so when he finds a new situation, he knows how to deal with them, and he's not just applying exactly what he's learned before or how he was instructed. So that's a sage. Another paragraph here, um, starting on line 274. What do I mean by single-minded here? Um, this is very interesting. Uh, he's basically talking about um, single-mindedly following virtue, following, you know, to achieve the utmost in goodness and uphold proper order, okay? Um, and to be firm in this. I like this line in 280. The sage is the pitch pipe of the way. What's the pitch pipe? It's a pipe that you use to tune instruments. So if you're not sure your cello is really playing C or G or B flat, um, then you use a pitch pipe 
you you stretch the string or loosen it until it sounds uh, correctly. In other words, you're according. So the stage is a pitch by uh, the way. Um, and so he is the one who can say whether or not the uh, culture is correct. Is it cor correctly according with the Tao? Okay. Thus, the principles of the Odes, documents, rituals, and music are summed up in him. The Odes tells of his the attention. The Odes are the songs, this poetry, and this is good for getting back in touch with your basic human goodness. Because these songs are all, they're not really, you know, laden with irony or philosophical questions. Uh, we're not doing Shakespeare's Hamlet with the Book of Songs. There are things that are very understandable and don't really change from time to time. So, uh, for example, wife worrying about her husband often more. You know, unfortunately, that never changes. Um, uh, I mean, that's a reoccurring situation. Uh, or people complaining about the burdens that bad governing is placing on them, like oppressive amounts of taxes. Clearly, uh, this is a situation applicable to today. Um, and, and so you have um, a lot of these poems that, even though they're written thousands of years in the past, are just rel as relevant today as they were back then. So the intentions are human basic are from human basic goodness, uh, basic human goodness. I mean. The documents tell us of his works. The documents uh, is kind of a history of the sage kings. Uh, the rituals, um, uh, I mean, it's not exactly only that, but you know, it's, um, um, if you wanna just kind of boil it down to statement, that's what it is. The rituals tells of his conduct. This is a, you know, a description of the different rituals out there from ceremony and so forth. Uh, the music tells about harmonious music, good music, right? The book of music uh, that they're referring to is good music because it promotes har harmony, harmoniousness, not conflict, not anger, not greed, not lust. That's what a lot of modern music is about, okay? But good music, it promotes harmoniousness. It gives you a sense of peace in your heart. Um, and sometimes even if music makes you sad, it makes you sad in, um, a, in a beautiful way. So harmoniousness is, um, you know, what, uh, the, you know, engendering harmoniousness is perhaps the most valuable function if we're going to assign music a function of music. Okay. The Spring of Autumn Annals is, um, tells of his subtlety because there's some moral judgments that, um, and this is, a, by the way, attributed to Confucius. Um, there's some moral judgments uh, bestowed upon the time of history that the Spring of uh, Autumn Annals uh, discusses. Okay. So, um, and the rest of this paragraph has to do with parts of the Book of Songs, um, you know, the Odes, and uh, maybe one day I'll have a discussion on the Odes, 
maybe, maybe not. But in any case, we have these classics that are great for developing yourself towards sagehood. Okay, next part here. I like this here. Uh, a guest claimed, Confucius said, uh, was not the Duke of Zhou magnificent, although his person was honored. He was all the more reverentially submissive. Although his house was wealthy, he was all the more sparing. Although he defeated his enemies, he was all the more on guard. Okay, so this guest is attributing this statement to Confucius. Now, Shunzi is saying, I'm afraid that, you know, this is not what the Duke of Zhou did, nor was this what Confucius said. I think this is kind of funny just overall, because um, nowadays we have kind of this, it's not just nowadays, but it's, it's always been the case where um, there's a lot of people, they're not thinking so in such refined ways. You know, they're not picking up on some subtle differences that are actually pretty important. So they'll say stuff like, um, I guess a more modern version would be like, oh, Confucius, Confucianism, oh yeah, respect your parents. You know? And that's it. That's all that they'll say about it or, or something, right? Or some people will criticize that as being like, oh, it's just, you know, um, it's all about trying to force people into obedience. Uh, and it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's very authoritarian and they don't like it because of that. It's, it's all very simple, uh, overly simple interpretations. And so Sunza is saying, look, um, this sounds correct, you know, because it, it just sounds like, oh, this guy, you know, even though he has a lot of money, he's still careful to spend well. Even though he's powerful and defeated his enemy, he's still on guard. Even though he was highly honored, he's still respectful to everybody. What a great guy, right? And uh, to reduce the teachings of Confucius to some kind of low common wisdom like this is what Shuz is basically disagreeing with. So he goes step by step and shows you how the king of Zhou isn't actually, um, you know, reverentially submissive. He's acting as a leader and taking bold action when it's righteously called for, when it's a just thing to do. Um, he is not being sparing when he's wealthy, he's being generous, uh, is, I guess, uh, a quick way of summarizing um, what he's done. And once he defeats his enemies, um, then he doesn't close his outer gates and, um, you know, there's peace throughout the world. So there's no need to be on guard, okay? So Shunzi is showing a much subtler um, understanding and it's worth rereading the section uh, to get the subtlety because if I just summarize it for you, of course, by nature, the subtlety is lost. Um, okay, this next section here, he's starting line 345, he's talking about all these famous people who are really good at a skill. Um, and, but they need some tool, right? If you're the best chariot driver, you still need a chariot. If you're the best archer, you still need bow and arrows. And so he says a great rue is someone who's capable and good at aligning and unifying the whole world or the whole empire or the whole country. But without a territory, he has nowhere to display his merit. Okay. On the other hand, if you do have a very small territory here, a hundred li, 
Ali is about a third of a mile. So not really that much land, um, although back then you could, you know, uh, the world was in a sense, quote, unquote, bigger. So this is a lot more land in a practical sense back then. But anyways, the point is, even if you have limited territory, um, if you cannot do well with that limited ter territory, you're not a great root. Um, next paragraph, the great root is such that even if he is hidden away in a poor neighborhood in a leaky hut, lacking even so much land as to plant an island, dukes and kings cannot compete with his fame. Okay. Um, again, when we're thinking about fame, we're thinking about this way. We're not thinking about today's understanding of fame or being famous. So the Kardashians have a pretty low reputation, but they are famous in, ter in absolute terms. This is not what Jesus is talking about. When he says he'll have fame, he's just counting only the positive reputation, the noble reputation, right? So if you're a bad king, you have low fame in, this, in these terms, okay? If you, on the other hand, if you're in a poor neighborhood, then what reputation you do have in absolute terms, right? Fewer people know about you, but they have a better, um, uh, they have much more respect for you, more honor. Uh, they give you more honor. Okay. Um, let's go to line 386. Here he talks about vulgar root, vulgar men, vulgar root, refined root, and great root. I think this is pretty interesting. The, um, the vulgar man is somebody who is just materialistic. He takes wealth and profit as his exalted standards. That's the most he rises to. And this is really sad because those guys are people like billionaires, right? The typical billionaire. They just take wealth and profit as the most important thing in their lives. That's why they also have so much money. Um, this is a vulgar man. He does not study or question. He has no correctness or E. He's not righteous. He loves money. That's a vulgar man. A vulgar rude, though. So he's, he is trying to be a Confucian, um, but he's not quite good at this. So the most important line to me here is line 395. He does not know how to exalt ritual and E and put the O's in documents second. So in other words, the, the Li and the E are more abstract things, they're more principled things, and they come more essentially. The Odes of Poetry is an extension of, um, of virtue uh, and humanity, and the documents are, um, you know, a history of good works by great persons. And so if you just memorize poetry, if you just memorize history, you're a vulgar root. That's an important lesson. On the other hand, the refined root is much better. He exalts ritual knee and then puts the uh, odes in the documents as secondary. His words and practices hold up to the grand model, but his understanding is limited. Okay, cannot make the match up completely. I like this part here later on in the paragraph. If he knows, then he says he knows. If he does not know, then he says he does not know. So I try to do this as well. It's, uh, it's easy to succumb to your sense of pride and just pretend you know what everything is. Uh, but 
um, you know, that's essentially lying and it does destroy your reputation. So that's why I say, I think this is the case. I think this is what he's saying if I'm not sure. On the other hand, if, um, if I think I know, then I just say that I know. Okay, so that's a refined rule. The great rule, um, there's a lot of descriptions here, but he is able to take what is essential and core and apply it to the myriad things. Um, he, uh, he can distinguish things that are righteous versus not righteous, red versus not red, clearly, like from black and white. And he is able to spontaneously respond to changes and unusual changes and deviant things. All right. So one day you, your politicians come up with some bizarre idea. They're abolishing property. He knows how to respond to that. Or more earlier, you know, we're going to get rid of the way that how bathrooms work. He can respond to that as well without any hesitation or misgivings. Okay, this is a great route. Okay. Uh, so the next few paragraphs are including ideas of, you know, um, if you're a ruler, then you need to employ, you know, the highest people that you can find. Um, and then we have some more description of the sage. Um, let's go to line 170. Oh, sorry, 471. Thus, having teachers and proper models is the greatest treasure for mankind, and lacking teachers and proper models is the greatest calamity for mankind. Because the teachers and the proper models show you how to go about a well-lived life. On the other hand, of course, lacking teachers or having proper models, or even if you're worse, you have these teachers that are teaching the wrong things, and these models are the wrong ways, this is a huge calamity for mankind. It's confusing today because we have so much material wealth, but again, material wealth is not important. So when we understand the true nature of things today, the real, the true reality of, of of what human life is like. Spiritually, we're poor. Morally, we're perverse. And materialistically, we're wealthy. This is vulgar. This is base. And this is a calamity for humanity. Because we're following the wrong ways, the wrong models. The right, the correct models, the Tao, is the Tao, and that's the Tao of the former kings. Today, we use all sorts of wrong political structures wrong values like freedom and equality and we'll talk about that later on why those are actually destructive and virtually any great philosophy recognizes this by the way um, you know Socrates is complaining about these things 2000 years 2000 something years ago too so uh, you know we'll have some more time to talk about uh, these things but we have incorrect models, and that's why the world is so corrupt today. Okay. Um, 
So lacking proper teachers, lacking proper models, it truly is the greatest calamity for mankind. And this is something else to think about. Perhaps this wealth, the material wealth is temporary. Maybe another 20 years, maybe 50 years, we'll be really dirt poor. People will be starving. I mean, you talk about all these supply chains not working out or you know, gas and energy getting too expensive um, or these wars that are uh, you know, perhaps unfolding as we speak. Um, do you, will this last forever, this lifestyle where we're pampered by air conditioning and uh, you know, electricity and, and lights and video games to distract ourselves and movies? really think this is going to last forever? Maybe not. So maybe this is just a temporary anomaly, the eye of the storm here, and we're just going to reach a new level, new life of poverty for another 100 years. All right. Um, line two, uh, 482, practice and habituation are the means to transform human nature. You have to keep practicing it. You have to keep working at it. You have to change your habits, your daily conduct um, in order to transform yourself. Um, part of the reason I'm doing these lectures, part of the reason I am teaching is because by constant, constantly teaching, I have to study, I have to reflect, I have to explain, and it keeps my mind and heart in the, on the right path so that I don't regress in practicing and, and I'm changing my habits. That's how I can transform my human nature, which is originally not good, according to Shenzhen. That's how I can accumulate virtue. So in line 490, thus if you accumulate soil, you'll form a mountain. If you accumulate water, you'll form a sea. So if you accumulate um, virtue in your learning and your actions, then you will gradually become, build yourself up into a sage. And so that's why you should continue listening to these lectures. You should continue studying on your own. You should do these things regularly. Put aside some time to do these things daily and every day. And you will eventually find a mountain out of one you know, handful of dirt at a time. Okay. Um, line 501, people accumulate experience in weeding and plowing. They become farmers. If they accumulate experience in chopping carbon, they become craftsmen. If they accumulate experience in selling and vending, they become merchants. You know, if you keep accumulate experience in programming, you become a computer engineer, right? And so forth. So if you accumulate experience in Li and E, you become Jinzen. You become a virtuous person if you keep experiencing, accumulate experience in racial propriety and righteousness. So from here to the very end, we have this um, two ideas here. You know, there are lowly people, not because not because of the way they're born. You know, you're not born to lower class. That's not obviously what it's talking about. You're, there are lowly people because they only their intentions are lowly. They don't have lofty motivations. And then there are you know high-minded people. And if you continue to work on yourself, you will improve. 
So the gentleman has this one exalted standard, that's line 550. And there's some explanation here as to what that is. But the exalted standard, whenever Sosa talks about this, he's referring to the Tao. And so the final metaphor that we uh, that of walks us through is this idea of building a house, building a building. You have to set a foundation. You have to set a roof. The roof is, of course, what you aspire to, but the foundations is what is fundamentally good and proper to follow. And the Tao guides you from the very beginning, the roots, the foundation, to the very end, to that top of the mountain, to that high ceiling. And that is how you want to understand your own journey in virtue. That's how you want to also understand how you can lead your family and within the world of politics and public life how to lead the whole country and thereby the world.